I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. This is, as ever, your host, Matt Dixon, and welcome to 2020. A new year ahead. This year, it's a big year. I hope for you, and I know for Purple Patch. Yep, we are finally ready to open up the Purple Patch Performance Center in San Francisco. It's coming in the next month or two, and we feel like it's going to be a special place, a home for our San Francisco-based athletes and coaching team, a destination for our Purple Patch friends and performance enthusiasts from around the world to come and visit And perhaps most interestingly to you guys, the listeners, a production factory for educational content. Yes, inside the Performance Center, we have a production studio to generate educational content for athletes, coaches, and enthusiasts. And the reason for that, well, education, that word, education, has always been massively important to myself and all at Purple Patch. And the center, quite frankly, is going to radically increase our ability to deliver high quality education to you from myself. Yep, I'll have a bit of pontification to do, but also many experts in their fields who share a passion for education in the performance space. Now, you guys that are listening, what does it have to do to me? Well, great things ahead, but also a little bit of an FYI. We're going to be hiring quite a lot of spaces to fill. So for you guys that are based in San Francisco, we've got a few people that well, we want to add to the team. If you're a passionate strength and conditioning coach with an appreciation for endurance performance, feel free to reach out. We're also going to be seeking an office manager to really be the humming center of everything at the center and purple patch. We're going to be looking for cycling coaches and instructors to lead our indoor cycling sessions. We'll be seeking a performance yoga lead, someone that has a real passion with core mobility, rejuvenation through an athlete mindset and a content strategist. Mostly their job to organize my brain, but ultimately be a partner to help us deliver what we hope is going to be something very special around the content and education side of things. So if any of those things sparked an interest to you, feel free to reach out, info at purplepatchfitness.com. No job descriptions yet. We're not quite ready to pull the trigger, but we'd love to add you to the list and we'll send you the job descriptions as they bubble up. Let us know what you might be interested in if there isn't a thing. Remember, all of these positions are San Francisco-based. So this isn't to add to our remote team. This is to be located at the center as your place of home. Well, now let's get on with today's show. I really wanted to launch into 2020 with high ambition and vigor. And today, we do so. Today, we have an important conversation with both a very good friend, a Purple Patch athlete, but most importantly, a wonderful performance expert, Tom Andrews. Tom was longtime president of SY Partners and now the CEO and founder of TJA Leadership, a performance strategy company helping C-level executives and organizations navigate and thrive through change. Sound familiar to many of you guys? Tom has worked with many 
of the world's leading CEOs and executives and teams. If you think about companies like Starbucks, IBM, Nike, the list goes on. He's an unbelievable resource. And today we're going to dive into leadership and excellence, the critical importance of mission and vision for an organization and team. Oh, and I should add athletes and coaches as well. What makes a great team? And perhaps most interestingly, how to navigate change and transition. And so today, as we dive into 2020, this one is for the business minded, but there is an undeniable and ongoing correlation to sports, performance, coaching, and athletics. And so if you're in any position of leadership, an athlete, a coach, well, this is, how shall I say it, unmissable. Now, mostly, as you go forth and you listen to this, I know, I know, Tom's accent is more charming than mine. He is very well spoken. And, well, you thought I was charming, but the truth is, the Wizard of Oz sham is uncovered. I'm just a bloke from East Essex. So, today, Tom Andrews. And if, after listening, you want to hear more or listen, learn more about Tom, all of his information is on the show notes. This week, there is no jingle, there is no word of the week. We have to wait one more week till we hear the ukulele and we get back to that good stuff. But instead, it stands alone. An hour and power of Tom Andrews. Please enjoy. And Tom, thanks for coming on the show. All right, guys, this is the meat and potatoes. We're diving right in today. And we have a very special guest with us live in the studio today, Tom Andrews. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Matt. So who is Tom Andrews? You're not known for your athletic prowess necessarily, although as we're going to get into a little bit later, you do have a sport in history and you are a, a very proud, I would say, I claim purple patch athlete. I do think I wear the kit well. You wear the kit very well, exactly. <laughs> But today, we're going to be talking about excellence, leadership, the importance of mission and vision, navigating transitions and change, and of course, team. And we're going to draw this all in with the intersection, the collision between really sport and business. We're going to talk on both sides of this. And there's a reason for that, for you guys that are listening. Tom is a very established business leader. He, for many years, was the president of SYP Partners, a transformation consultancy operation that opened up their office in New York City. And for the last couple of years, has been, is the founder and CEO of TJA Leadership. And their TJA Leadership focus on leadership consulting in big moments of change. And so you can imagine Tom has a rich history of working with C-level executives guiding them through change efforts. Much of the, uh, much of thing, the, the parallels of what we can maybe talk about of, in many ways, you're a coach. Yes, Matt. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me on your podcast. I have suffered under your coaching for long enough. Now I get to suffer under your withering questions. Withering questions. We'll put you in the corner and we'll, uh, we will punish you with questions. Let, let's go first. And I, I'd like to do this with every guest, I think it's important for grounding mm. for the listeners is to understand your background, your family, where sure. you're from. Now, I'm a little afraid of asking this and, and I'm a little frustrated because you are exposing my 
East Essex, very poor Cockney accent with your very pure Middle England accent. So why don't you give us a little bit of a, a personal history? Sure. Uh, born in London. I, you know, most, I would say I've journeyed a lot around the world. So I've actually spent more time outside of England than in England. So the accent right now is, uh, I don't know what it is. It's a bit of a hodgepodge. I suppose there's a bit of British in it still, right? Uh, grew, but born in London, uh, my mum and dad, my mum was a photojournalist. My dad was a journalist and they, we ended up in the Middle East right away. And so for the first seven years, I grew up in Beirut, wow. uh, which was incredible. So you could, you could sunbathe uh, by the sea in the morning and then you could go ski in the mountains in the afternoon. It's an incredible place. P- people don't know that about Beirut. By oh, the it's way, incredible. It's yeah. amazing. It's like it's, it's on the Mediterranean uh, in the 70s and 60s. It was an idyllic place to be. But then the Civil War broke out. Yes. And yes. really tore that, tore it apart. And we lasted about a year there and it was getting so dangerous. I mean, I spent, we spent most of our time indoors. My mum would put a, a, my mattress up against the window because bullets would come through the window. We have a, a, a jar of shell casings from that era. And occasionally we'd venture out, but there were sniper positions nearby. So we lasted a year and then it was simply too dangerous. And my mum took me and one day we just fled and ended up back in London uh, where I was schooled. I went to an awful comprehensive school in London. And my traje- trajectory was towards the local comprehensive school, which is a state school uh, for American listeners, uh, where, which was most well-known for its knife fights. <laughs> and it sounds like my high school. <laughs> fortunately, my mom and dad were having none, none of that and took out a fair amount of debt and put, put me in private school. Uh, a public school for boys, which I don't really recommend for anyone, but I I survived somehow. Uh, did a gap year in Singapore, uh, where I, um, you know, I I got up up to all kinds of shenanigans. I then went to Cambridge for four years and studied languages uh, and literature. And then, uh, I, I, I traveled. I didn't want to live in England. I wanted to travel. I wanted Mm -hmm. to see the world. I ended up in Southeast Asia in Hong Kong, worked there for two years. I met my wife who's American there and she dragged me kicking and screaming to the States. Uh, we started on the West Coast, went to the East Coast, bounced back and forth a few times, and then uh, ended up, we ended up in New York right now. And, uh, and what about sport in that journey? You're traveling all over the world. And, and I think as, as this is a performance podcast and you are now an endurance athlete, what, what, were you an endurance athlete when you were young? Or what, no. what was your sport of choice? I don't. It's a real hodgepodge. I think... Uh, Ah, sport has basically carried me through a lot of change and transition. So it's always been there for me, but I have done a lot of different sports. I started in tennis because we had a tennis court. We lived over a tennis court. Uh, and then I took up squash and then I tried to become really good at rugby, which you know me, I'm a more of an endurance build. So I was kind of a skinny kid at school, but I was determined to get on the rugby team. And that lasted until just the tryouts for the rugby team at my school, which took rugby very seriously, where someone tackled me very viciously from the side. My foot got caught, twisted my leg, and I snapped my thigh loud enough that three fields over people could hear it. And I just remember being carried off on a, on a hospital stretcher and someone telling me that the stuff I was getting in a gas mask was what they gave to pregnant women. And I thought, God, I hope they don't have the kind of pain that I'm going through right now. So that, that killed my rugby career, and I went back into, uh, I took up swimming, got pretty good at swimming, and then I 
decided I wanted to combine ball sports with swimming, so I did water polo. Of course, yeah. I went and did water polo in college at, at uh, Cambridge, and then I left. And I was like, what What am I going to do now? So I took up karate because um, I, I love a technical challenge. I love, to, I love to have to challenge myself a lot. So I took up karate. That kept me through my various travels, uh, and I did karate and got my black belt in karate. And then in San Francisco, my sensei eventually left, she was this giant, tough Puerto Rican woman who could beat the crap out of everyone and certainly did with me. And she left, and I was sort of left at a, at a loose end. And uh, that's when a friend introduced me to uh, cycling and ultimately triathlon. Well, wow. it was about I don't know, 10 years ago. About 10 years ago that you've yeah. gone into it. So, the, so the, it, it's always interesting because the, I mean, I, I've, I've just done a podcast on. Um, the importance of the variety of sport, not over-specializing yeah. early. Not, not that your quest has ever been to be an elite athlete, but it's an incredibly well-rounded well, journey. Well, in, in my head, I, I think of myself as an elite athlete. You're, you're your own very special person. Yes, yes very... indeed. So, but, but I want to come, the reason we're here today, we're going to talk all about everything around team mission excellence and, uh, and a lot of what you can offer in this area. So I want to dig in. I think it's important as well, not just to go through your personal background, but give us, give us a grounding both at SYP knowing that they're related and now TJA leadership, uh, which I, which I learned from you today is called the journey ahead, not just your initials, of course, but I think it's really un- important for listeners to understand your role and your work at those two institutions. Give us an overview of what you do, who you work with, and and the sort of interventions and outcomes that you produce. Sure. Um, I would say that, I mean, essentially what I do is I help leaders lead better in big moments of change. And there's a few components to that that I've built the company around. One is, and here's a simple frame for everyone. You can take this, you can take this away and, and think about how you lead in big moments of change through this frame. It's simply it, we, and I. And the it is when you're in a moment of change and you have to master leadership, you have to actually come up with a strategy. So the it is all the things you have to produce to give people direction. Uh, A sense of purpose, something written down that gives people a sense of mission and purpose. A vision, where are we headed? What's our point of arrival, as, as one of my clients would say? Uh, and a, a sense of vision, like something to rally people around. A strategy, what choices are you going to make to get there? And uh, ultimately a plan, like even if you have to throw it out the door when you actually try it, it's important to have that plan. So that's the it, that's the stuff that, and we help leaders come up with that. Yep. The we is the thing that I think people really underestimate in any moment of change. And I think honestly in, in sport as well, we underestimate, the, especially in triathlon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the we is uh, how you build a strong team around yeah. you, especially today. There's so much, so much change happens so fast. One person cannot m- manage or harness all the possibilities to actually reinvent yourself or reinvent an organization. You need a team for that. And building a team takes a lot of emotional work and it takes time and it takes a lot of skill and we underestimate how important it is for success so the team part is really is super important and we work on that it's also actually we underestimate too when we're stepping into moments of change the politics of a situation Mm -hmm. how much vested interest there is how much people 
will fight to defend a status quo and how much you need to know how to work relationships in order to succeed. That's the we. And then the last bit is the, the I like, what's the journey of being a leader? I mean, every time you're always operating normally at the edge of your incompetence. And when you're operating at the edge of your incompetence, it really helps to have someone with you helping you through that and helping you have good habits and think through and have, be a sort of neutral sounding board. Which is uh, that, that last eye component. One of the things I've noticed, obviously, I work with a lot of C-level executives as well. And what you realize very quickly is they don't have that sounding board because quite often no. they've got a board above them. They've got people that they are leading, but they don't, they don't have really many peers to, to actually help support them and give them some feedback and guidance and support and as you say a sounding board in many ways it's true and the the thing is at the top of an organization your people see you may internally think you're one of the people but people around you it's the the someone called this the admiralty problem where if you're dealing with someone in the navy or in a military situation the insignia gives them all this rank and status and so you never you don't tell them things yeah. for fear of upsetting them and it's the same in a in any kind of business we're wired to be hierarchical and so someone at the top of your organization is you're, you're going to always in some way be manipulating your relationship to them you're always trying to gain favor or watch what you say and if you're that leader you have to go out of your way to get good input good feedback have good sounding boards and and this can happen obviously at any level of an organization that same status and, in, and including sort of a coach coaching athletes yes. where it's sort of like do as i say mentality and i mean you see some really in my mind poor coaching where it's just purely dictatorial oh yeah so they awful. amplify that that effect yeah it just it, it reinforces it yeah, yeah exactly so you're never going to get the true you don't get any honest anything. dialogue yeah. you don't get any good input you don't learn you don't grow yeah you always go you're, go horribly wrong i mean I've, I've seen i've seen some ceos that i know very well lose their positions and get fired essentially because they they cut themselves off from good input and good feedback and they failed to build good rapport both with the boards or with the people around them or their own teams so so can you with a looking through a positive sense can you give us a maybe a classic intervention or a project maybe someone you've worked with i don't know if you can name any of the companies that you've worked with over the over the years well, over the years, a lot. I mean, a lot of big companies ranging from the IBMs of the world to the Hewlett-Packards to Nikes to Chipotle's, nothing, no particular industry, just a lot of, you know, big brands, always when they're going through some kind of reinvention. Sure. You know, a classic was Starbucks back in 2008 when Howard Schultz came back in and turned that company around. Uh, and my old company was part of that turnaround. And so we learn a lot through that process about what it means to build a great brand and to actually sort of turn it around and manage the change and the transition. I've also worked with smaller companies, companies like AppNexus um, in New York, which is a digital company. Um, companies like uh, SoulCycle, which, you know, oh, yeah. boutique, boutique fitness. Uh, so it's, it's a range, but mostly it's companies that have, have already proven their business model and they're facing some kind of growing pain, some kind of issue where they can't get to the next level. And that's when someone comes in, either often from the outside. So I've worked with a lot of leaders who are coming in from the outside to try to turn a situation around or to lift lift the performance of an organization up to a new level. 
Um, and uh, one recently is a CMO. So her first time as a CMO. And she comes into a digital company. And it's a moment where that company itself is going through a massive transformation. And she arrives to find, you know, she's hired a CMO to actually help them build their marketing uh, function. She arrives to find there really isn't much marketing function. It's a product-driven company. Everyone's operating in silos. There's no marketing strategy, and she doesn't have a team. So we're 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 there on a journey of about a, a year, where the starting point is okay. Let's get you grounded. You need some bearings. We need to figure out what the what the strategy is for marketing. We need to figure out um, how to set vision and. The second piece then becomes about how do you build a great team around you? You're going to need to build a team. And while you're building a team, you have to build a really strong relationship with the executive team who are your peer level. And there is this very, there's a sort of dangerous moment, long moment where you're earning, you're, you're earning trust. Yeah. The very beginning, you have a sort of honeymoon period where everyone thinks, okay, we, we've hired you. We believed in you. Great. Go do your stuff. That lasts for like a honeymoon period of maybe three to six months. And then it really diminishes. The half-life is not that long. And in that period of time, you have to build strong relationships or you risk being basically marginalized. There are all these ways in which people um, uh, push you, resist you as a leader when you're coming in to do change. One is you can get marginalized. I'm sure many people have had the experience of being sort of marginalized, either shut down from in terms of their opinions or somehow politically marginalized. So you can be marginalized. You can be, um, you can literally be attacked, mm-hmm. um, verbally, uh, or, or resisted verbally. You can, um, be distracted. Uh, you can be sort of pulled into other projects. So there are lots of ways in which you can be really thrown off. And so part of the, the team building that we did with, with um with the CMO was really how do you negotiate those relationships and make sure that you're 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 doing the right thing to build trust. And then the last thing that we did with her was really help her we coach her on her own leadership skill and her ability to have a strong perspective and show up with full confidence. Because in these moments, you you come in from an typically people come in from an organization where they're really successful. They got yeah. hired because they did a great job, and people are bringing them in and saying, "This is fantastic. Come do the same thing here." But here is a very different place. Here is not where you were, and what got you successful where you were is not what's going to make you successful in your new job. And our work role, our work then is about un- helping you master the new context. It's about helping you figure it out. And it's about giving you some perspective and a space to think it through. And it's about helping you do all that difficult personal thinking and being vulnerable so that you can be successful. Well, it, it, it leads me on that, that, that last point there. I want to dig in and, and, and as much as we can, because we might be talking for two hours here and, uh, and I want to keep us on track. I want to talk about leadership in itself. And that, that last point you mentioned there, I thought was, was, really worthwhile and particularly traits of excellence leadership. You have worked with many, you've worked with many of the best. Uh, I've been very lucky and coached many C-level executives. And, and, I, and I know that you've heard me talk about the characteristics of, um, of great leadership, but let's go through that a little bit. First, well, 
Talk to me about the importance of a leader of an organization or a captain of a team, a coach. What, what, do you, what are your senses, the, the, the importance of that person? I think that's central. I mean, I, I want to be careful, though, because there's, there's a bit of a myth, and it's particularly prevalent in the States because of the sort of Western, sort of Western theme in, in the U.S. of the lone hero. You know, think about how many movies are about some guy who, John Wayne, John yeah. Wick, or John yeah. Wayne to John Wick. Yeah, right? exactly. It's like some guy somehow takes out an entire village of bad guys. It's that that's not the reality in in business. So I just I want to be careful that a good leader is central, but they do not operate alone. So let's let's bust that myth. A professional athlete is central, but they do not operate alone. There you go. And I think, what I do think, what they do is they hold. They become a a, um, a way to embody the hopes and aspirations of an entire group, because we as human beings, I think, have a hard time uh, sort of ascribing. Um, vision and, and hope to lots of different people. We kind of need to see it embodied by one person who has the strongest position of authority. So as a leader, what you do is you, you hold those hopes and you hold those aspirations and you kind of set the tone. That's what a good leader does. And I think a good leader really creates clarity and direction. And uh, I mean, I'm thinking back to, I mean, who's worked with a ton of them, but I mean, you, you pick someone um, like a Howard Schultz in 2008 coming in and recognize, helping everyone recognize that Starbucks had lost its way at that point. And in that moment, really leaning into what is the purpose of this company mm-hmm. and using his own status as a leader to help everyone focus again on what is the purpose of the organization and let's rally around it so that we can actually transform ourselves while staying true to that purpose. That's a very, that's, that's a role that only a leader can play. I think if you think about someone like a Steve Jobs, the other role that's critical is that clarity that you create for people. So when he came back into Apple, he, he got rid of a lot of things. He got rid of a lot of SKUs, a lot of products that were simply distractions and helped focus everyone on the products that they wanted to win with the iMac in particular. Yeah. So I do think it's part, I mean, and you look at, uh, I do think let, let's also make a distinction between leadership and leaders. Like I think leaders often don't lead, um, meaning people in authority don't always lead. Mm-hmm. If you look around us today, there's a real absence of leadership yep. by leaders in authority, particularly politicians. Um, and I think people who don't have formal authority often do lead. And you can look at CEOs, for example, who have in moments where the organization needed them to step it, step up and embody an ideal, fail to do that, fail to lead. And I, I'm thinking particularly recently, um, my, my wife is from Seattle. And so I have a, a kinship with Seattle and her dad worked for Boeing. And so it's been really sad for me to see um, – what's gone on with, with Boeing recently and, uh, Muhlenberg, Dennis Muhlenberg, the CEO who's now, um, been ousted made some incredibly poor 
um, lap, uh, mistakes and showed poor judgment in sort of reflexively defending the software glitches and problems with the with the uh, 757 Max in a way that I think really failed that entire organization. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the best. Let's talk about uh, great leaders and executives. And I'm going to put you on the spot here. If you had to define the key characteristics of the very best that you've worked with, I always think back of the professional athletes that I've worked with and over the last 15 years that I've worked with a whole host of very successful to different degrees athletes and I can identify really common traits and characteristics that always emerge and they become very common almost ever present are there ones that you can really identify as uh, as great leaders and executives well you know Matt I have a I have a a picture of you on my wall (laughs) that that I generally use to inspire me (laughs) um yeah uh maybe you know this may may come as a surprise to some people but i would say the the most what i've come to believe is the most important characteristic is is actually um curiosity uh, and that's that's a lot of that is born by personal experience i mean i've, I've i don't know how many i've probably worked with 50 or so or more ceos and cmos over 25 years and the thing that i've noticed separates over the long term that separates the best from the middle of the pack or even people who who fail is their willingness to um, be open-minded and to learn and that that it's kind of it's a little bit paradoxical because to be a, a leader you have to show conviction and you have to kind of stand in that conviction because because people can't you can't follow someone who's like really hesitant and uncertain yeah like you know i don't really know where we should go well you're not going to follow that person so you somehow have to hold that conviction but at the same time if that conviction is fixed then it's the there's no learning and no growth and no adaptation and no flexibility and that leader stalls as well i've seen a lot of leaders just stagnate and stall they, they got they got so far and then I'm like, look at them. They go, like, just couldn't get any further because they weren't willing to be open or to learn. And I, um, some of the best, I, whether it's uh, like uh, Michelle Gass, who, who run, who's, runs Coles now, or uh, Amy Johnson, who's a um, head of marketing at Zillow. They're, they're, these are, they're really open to learning and to growth. And they're, they're constantly curious. Uh, Beth Comstock, uh, who's the vice chair, the most senior woman at, um, leader at, GE uh, said at one point to me how important it was to always go out and experience things for yourself and be curious because she always wanted it unfiltered. She wanted to learn and it was through that learning that she could make, she could make, she had better judgment. So the curiosity is huge. I, I, th- I, I absolutely, absolutely agree. And in fact, the, the one trait that I've always found when I first started working with executives on their health journey, their performance mm. journey, and I thought, well, these, these are really successful people. And yet all of them come with, I always, I always talk about in terms of a certain humility, where they really want to learn. It's not just, it's never tell me what to do. It's tell me why I need to do it. Mm-hmm. And then by that sort of empowerment, they'll go and run off the end of the earth for you in many ways but interestingly the greatest athletes i've worked have always been exactly the same where they're 
there's a certain humility and an absolute eagerness to never stop learning, never mm-hmm. stop growing, even even the most successful. And I, and I would, wouldn't hesitate to say without obviously knowing, but someone like a Jan Frodeno, the, probably mm-hmm. the best triathlete of all time, mm-hmm. at least male triathlete, I'm sure he is just desperately still learning and growing mm-hmm. and never feels like he's got a a fixed end we always talk about in coaching whenever you think you've got it all worked out it's time to retire yeah and uh, you know so i think that's a a hugely important component i I, i'd like to reverse it on you a little bit though and uh you've talked about coaching leaders and and obviously that's where you're spending most of your life you have also been coached and uh, and i have coached (laughs) you and and so that's a that's a reversal in, in many ways, and, and I know, uh, and I should point out to everyone that, that Tom and uh, TGA Leadership have, have been instrumental in helping Purple Patch with finding path vision, etc., and navigating or transition. But uh, how has it been for you to be coached on the other side of the fence? What are the challenges, and uh, has it provided you any perspective as you've gone through that journey yourself? It, it's... it's <laughs> Sorry. I was just thinking of, uh, I was thinking of your coaching in particular because I, I remember there's one story. I, the, the point of the story here is that I think there are ways a good coach helps you break through what you perceive as your own limitations. And boy, I didn't realize how many limitations I had until I went to, uh, I think I went to your clinics in, uh, North South Carolina, right? South Carolina, where it's based, yeah, right? South Carolina camp. That's right. Uh, South Carolina camp, which I, I do recommend. It's it's astonishing in terms of the amount of learning you do in a short period of time. But I remember it was I, I've never cycled that hard in my life, and there was a the second day of cycling, like the warm up ride was more than my my toughest weekly ride. Uh, but I, I remember going. I was like halfway up a hill, a very steep, brutal hill, and you had been. The whole team had been teaching us how to sort of switch gears and manage the terrain. And I was halfway up it and I was dying. I mean, I was frothing at the mouth, eyes, eyes going in different directions. And I saw, and you'd been ahead of me at this point. Mm-hmm. And then I saw you come down to me and I'm just, in my head, I'm thinking, oh God, no. God, no, Matt. Just don't, don't ignore me. I tried to shrink into my bike, but you came right up close to me and you, and you leaned in to me and you said, Tom, it was just a pause. I just remember thinking, oh God, you see that guy up there 500 yards away with the blonde hair? And I lo- looked up and sure enough, there's uh, one of our camp, camp mates was up there 500 yards away. He can't get up in the morning and leave his room without blow drying his hair. <laughs> Tom, are you, are you going to let a guy who can't leave his room in the morning without blow drying his hair mm-hmm. beat you to the top of that hill? And I and I, I don't know why you figured out that that would somehow <laughs> that would somehow summon all my spirit. But I I picked it up and I I I I don't know where I, I don't know where. But somehow I pushed myself to the top of the hill and I beat him. I mean, I died at the top of the hill. You sure? I needed I needed uh, resuscitation, but it did the trick. So I think there's that. How do you pull someone out and help them overcome their own limitations? There, there are many different ways, but uh, you know that they're, 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 I think there's an important coaching part of that, which is that as you come down as a coach, you have to be able to look at the athlete as well. And for, they're, they're obviously you can 
beat them with a stick you can inject humor as obviously I did there but there's also is that appropriate because if I looked at you and truly felt like you had nothing else to give that's not the appropriate thing because it would have been met with failure but instead what I realized is that you were very internal you Mm -hmm. were feeling a bit sorry for yourself because it was hard (laughs) and uh and so you I I put an external cue (laughs) of which then I could sort of coach you how to do it as you went up there and bridge it which I think is really important um, what, what, what else on the coaching side have, has you gone through the journey globally? Has it, has it been an interesting experience for you? Yeah, edu- ed- I, you know, I, I know it's a big, a big thing for me is education. A big thing for you is education. I talked about curiosity with leaders and I do think, edu- so education, the, the origins of that word are all about bring, you're leading, some, you're bringing something out of someone. You're helping them really develop. And I, I'm a huge believer in it. And I think the power of, of good coaching is it, is it expands you. It 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 expands you. Teaches you. Mm-hmm. You end up a better human being, Fred. And that's that's the goal of that's the goal of our work at TJA. And I, I think it's the goal of so much of the work you're doing at Pebble Batch. I, I love that. It's why I feel such kinship. Yeah, it's you not telling you better. what to it's do. It's not telling you what to do. It's, it's empowerment. It's, it's empowerment. Absolutely amazing. It's so helpful. Yeah, it's uh, it's fantastic. Let, let's transition. I think that we spend so much time i know this is really central i want to go into mission and vision and change and uh, in coaching as as you know we we talk a lot about athlete development and multi-year journeys so when an athlete joins very seldom do we say oh what's your next event let's just get ready for that and instead it's about firstly individual development over multiple years along the way of which you're going to hopefully have a lot of success. Um, And so I'd love you to take that concept where you think about road mapping vision and mission and identify for us why, why that is so important because I think quite often vision and mission for companies or teams gets relegated as a, Oh yeah, I'm just going to rush through this. I'm just, you know, yeah, it's important, but we need to get, we're busy. We need to get on with this. Why is it so critical to redefine vision and mission? That's probably a podcast in itself, isn't it? Oh God, yeah. I can't believe we're still, I can't believe there is still resistance to the notion out there that purpose and mission are central to any business. I mean, the, the, I think it was Jim Collins back in 1994 who showed that uh, mission-driven companies have, have six times um the performance results overall um, than uh, companies that are explicitly focused on profit. And those studies have been repeated. It, it's everything. It's, it's the everything. Every great, I mean, think of whether it's Google, whether it's Starbucks, whether it's JetBlue, all of the, Nike, um, IBM. I think it was Thomas Watson, who was one of the, the, who was the founder of IBM, who said you should be able to, and IBM has gone through extraordinary ways yeah. transformation. I mean, it's got, started as a tabulating machines and it became about, um, mainframe, it became about mainframe servers. And then it went through the, the, the PC era. And then now it's going through, it went into the e-business era. Now it's fundamentally transforming itself under Remedi's leadership to becoming, you know, cloud computing and AI. And I think it was, it was Watson who said, you should, you should be willing to reinvent everything about a business except for its purpose and its values. So it always comes back to those. Starting a company, there has to be purpose and values and a clear vision of what you're doing. Managing a company through change, there has to be purpose, values, and vision. Helping people feel uh, a sense of belonging 
to a company so that they can do their best work again comes to purpose, vision, and values. We're 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 human beings, and every every organization is. It's not about spreadsheets. It's about the human um, will and belief and power. Any company is at the at the end of the day. It's a it's based on a fiction that. If you, if it, you come together as a group of people and you work together to produce some outcome, it requires a story and it requires a sense of purpose. It's everything. And, and I think the, the, the important, I always think about this as the classic offsite, get together, set the tone and off you go. But this is something that needs to be revisited many, many times. I guess IBM is maybe the best example of that. Yeah. Huh? It does have to be. Um, I, I, I noticed that there's a sort of three three-year cycle or three to five-year cycle where the organizations have been in contact with find they have to kind of they have to revisit and recommit to that sense of purpose and it becomes a thing that you can rally people around i mean JetBlue, uh for example has gone through several iterations and at one point almost went out of business when um david nielbaum was running the company and I think there was a famous moment where people were stranded on the tarmac for about six hours or more. And it was horrible. It was a public relations disaster. And Neobam went back to what is, what is our founding purpose? And it's about inspiring humanity. If that's our, that was not what we just did was not about inspiring humanity. So we have to completely revisit what we're about and, use that moment to write a passenger credo that was way beyond what any other airline was doing at that point and way beyond what was being required by the FCC and, or FAA and, uh, turn the, turn JetBlue around. Mm -hmm. What about change? We have a, uh, we're saying at purple patch, which, you know, evolve or die. That's, mm -hmm. uh, comes back to the growth, comes back to the inquisition, but we, we constantly go through change. And I, and I think in any organization, any team, change is inevitable. Things don't stay static. When change is, is upon us, what are the common mistakes that you see from people navigating it? Uh, the first one, the first one, the first one's always communication. Uh, I think it was, I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said the, the fundamental tragedy of communications is to believe it has taken place. And the reason is we think we think we've, we've communicated change. We, the, the leadership team that is usually in charge of making the changes goes through a journey, internal journey of making choices and decisions that sometimes are quite hard. They go through that journey and then they communicate the change and then move on. A little bit like the elite runners in a marathon who take off and then they're done with the marathon and everyone else at the back, because it's such a big, it's a, it's New York City marathon is so big. People are only just starting at that point. Mm -hmm. It's the same in an organization with change. You've got a lot of people who are just beginning to reckon with change and there's a transition they have to go through, but the leadership's already moved on. And they completely, fundamentally underestimate how much communication you have to do. Because um, they've, they've gone through their they've journeys. They've gone through clarity. their journey, yeah. You, yeah. And you, you have to bring everyone on the journey. It's change. Change is, uh, there was someone who um, pointed out to me that cha actual change, like for, for human beings, change is always happening. The change itself is not the problem. The problem is the transition you go through to adapt to the change. And it's actually biological. 
when you when you need to move into a new role, when you need to accept change, you're rewiring various aspects of your own identity, which happens at a very biological level. It takes time. And so if you don't spend the time with people actually bringing them through that and communicating and communicating and communicating, you, you, you end up leaving this deep inset of um, habit and resistance in an organization to actually making the transition needed and everything stalls or it takes, takes so long. So that's a huge thing is I would say mistake number one is not to communicate sufficiently. I think, I think mistake number two is, is um, mistake number, and it's hard to, there's a, there's a thing that we have in, in our own organization, which is to talk about um, love and fear as primal forces that drive us as leaders and as human beings. And this is actually, um, this is something that felt very personal to me because of a, of a, a moment in San Francisco, maybe 15 years ago mm-hmm. where, and I'll, so I'm, I'll tell a story and I'll come back to the, the point the, the story is I was learning to ride and, uh, my friend would take me up to the Marin headlands. And then one day on a Sunday, I went out by myself, I rode up to the Marin headlands. And if, for anyone who knows the Marin headlands, it's a very, very steep set of switchbacks that go down the backside, the backside of Hawk Hill, and it overlooks the ocean. And it's really quite treacherous. And I went up on a Sunday and it was misty and it was wet. And I came out of one corner and I had a lot of speed and I got really afraid. And as I came into the second corner, I thought, shit, I'm out of control. I grabbed hold of the brakes. I stiffened up and I, I basically put the bike into a horrendous skid. And at about 35, 35 miles an hour, I came flying off that bike. I skidded down the road under the barricade. So I'm hanging over the cliff edge, took up my, my helmet. I took off most of my back in terms of the skin off my back. And a highway patrolman came by, thankfully, and sort of picked me up and, and helped me to the emergency room. And it was in the emergency room that I realized that the conditions themselves did not cause me to crash. What caused me to crash was my own fear of crashing. Mm-hmm. Because I was afraid of crashing, I stiffened up, changed my sense of gravity. That- I took an action. I gripped the brakes really hard. And there is the, it's a driving force in us. When we experience threat, when we experience fear... The paradox is it can cause us to do the very same things that will lead to our failure in navigating any kind of transition. The only overriding force there is love. When you believe in something that's bigger than your own self-interest and your own self-attachment, you can manage that fear and you can lead through it. It's the same in change. And it's the same in leadership. So what I found is a mistake you can make in leading change is to uh, encourage fear. You can lead from a place of things are going to go sideways. Everything's burning. There's even a phrase burning platform. Let's create a burning platform. Mm-hmm. Well, burning platforms hurt and they don't keep people motivated for very long. 
It's a cattle prod. <laughs> it's a cattle prod. It's mm -hmm. awful. What you're not building when you when you use a, a motivation which is around compassion, motivation that's around a higher purpose, which is basically a form of love because you're loving. You're, you you're becoming attached to something much bigger than yourself. So it's outside of your ego. You you encourage really long term strength at, through a transition, and people are drawn towards something like that as opposed to running away from the thing that's hurting. It's um, it, it's interesting. I I can't help but listen to you and think about coaching and coaches yeah. and communication, uh, which I'm going to get. So I I want to ask you, you quick and dirty, and I get asked this all the time. Give us your five tips for swimming. But uh, <laughs> but so I'm going to throw it back at you because I hate that. Go I, forward. I hate Go like forward. Flat their arms. What 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 is your distilled? What would your two to three must do's for? a leader or a coach who's navigating change or helping a team navigating change? What do you think the most important th things are? The, the quick hits. There are, <laughs> it's very hard to do quick hits on this stuff. Uh, listen. Um, and I mean, listen in a full body sense. You have to, people have made mistakes in politics and in business because they're, blind or deaf to what's really going on, whether it's that you're not building constituency, even think about the last election for that matter, Clinton against Trump. There was deafness there. There was a lack, there was a real, we missed things. So it's the same in change. If you're not really listening, and the, the, the problem is that you, you put yourself, you, you, you feel in the spotlight as a leader, so you feel like you have to have the answers. You don't have to have the answers. You just need to pull together a point of view and the point of view can be half-assed and you can say it's half-assed, but it's enough. So first thing is, a uh, quick tip is, um, is really listen. I think the other quick, quick tip is, um, is actually to make the next scene. Don't believe that you have to play the entire chess game out. Don't believe that you have to have a plan that goes, that is fully baked. You just need to get. You just need to get to the next scene. Yep. You just need to make the next thing happen that allow you to make the next thing happen. Because it comes back to journey. It's a journey. It's a yeah, journey. and things. It's going to zig and zag. Yep. Things are going to go wrong. It's okay. It's totally okay. The third thing on things going wrong is things will go wrong. Things will go wrong. Things will go wrong. So um, I think being patient with the fact that things go wrong and in using those as a way to learn teaches everyone around you that it's okay to learn and it's okay to fail, which means that you're actually going to accelerate out of the failure and into the good things because people are, are making use of it as opposed to running away and shielding themselves from learning. It, it, the, the journey to performance is never linear. Never, and, you know, you can think of any world champion and it's, oh, it's unbelievable it's the amount of, of adversity and setbacks and failings. And so it, many setbacks. even with Purple Patch, we had a... A product that, uh, or a coaching service that was, by all accounts, sort of highly successful. We weren't satisfied, and and last year reinvented. That's why we came up with Purple Patch Squad because we had to realise and say this is not serving the athletes that in the way that we want to to get them to the outcomes that they deserve and want and are, and are, and are committing to us for. And so you realise that was 
It was a bunch of mistakes, but it enabled us to accelerate out of it. And now we're very proud and happy with what we're creating. But anyway. It's, it's, um, there's this notion, social science, of psychological safety. This idea that you, and Amy Edmondson is, uh, is uh, the uh, researcher who writes, has written a lot about this. It's so important to create that, that um, environment where people feel it's okay to fail and to learn from the failure. It's not like anyone wants to fail or that you actually try to fail. It's more that when you fail, you use it as a moment to learn and to talk openly about that as opposed to something to be embarrassed about and then to look f to blame someone for. Because when you do that, you actually create a really strong community that can manage its way through a lot of change, even when a lot of things are going wrong. Mm -hmm. we, we, have a, we, we talk a lot with our athletes. We, we are uh, outcome or process over outcome focused mm. in terms of their mm. developments. We, we, we rarely or really never talk about winning per se because right. it's an outcome and it's also ultimately something you can't control. You can yeah. do everything that you can. We, we talk a lot with athletes around internal scorecard as well, just, just going down the journey of failure. So actually really measuring yourself and your performance based on the things that you can control, yeah. the things that, that you actually have the ability to influence and then on that if you're failing you're failing in that department mm -hmm. then you can really reflect and say well how do we change right. because it's controllable yeah. versus and and if you're not failing in that if you do everything in your power and all of those elements and shit happens yeah. someone beats you yeah. you get a flat tire it's actually easier to be okay with that because you, you have done everything you can in your control. Yeah. I think that's a really important component in sport that I see a lot of business people actually missing that point yes. as well. They, they, their whole lens is profit, numbers, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, and you know, let's face it, anyone who gets into leadership positions or, or is a, a you know, high-intensity athlete hates losing. Absolutely, I yeah. hate losing. I hate mm -hmm. not, not doing well. We hate failure. There's nothing wrong with hating failure. The problem is when you just when you you then blame people for it or you shut yourself off from learning from it because it's just an amazing way to learn. It's such a great teacher. It's I have this thing freedom to fail. I remember some of my athletes and a couple of my assistant yeah. coaches absolutely hated hate hate that saying it's like it's defeatist it's like and it's, it's a, I, I obviously hadn't communicated enough what it meant because <laughs> no. I didn't mean hey go no. out there hey, fail. Go out and fail we don't really care it's all fun no. isn't it it's just a good no. time it's like no what it is 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 making the the journey the the scorecard being very much internal how are we doing in the things that we can control to give us the best opportunity for success yeah and uh and then of course learning from failure which is uh which is super i want to come back to team to finish the conversation yep. here because i i don't think we can finish the conversation without talking about this you you talked about the it, or, or I'm going to use my words in this. The leader cannot be a dictator. You cannot optimize alone. And uh, I think that's the same for an athlete. Uh, I, I know it's the same for a, for a CEO. But um, go into team a bit more for me here and think about an outline of a really highly effective team within an organization. You got any examples that you could do within action of that? Well, I'll go back... Uh, yeah, um, let's go back to what you said about 
a leader cannot be a dictator. A leader can be a dictator. It, I just think true. <laughs> I, I know some anyone, poorly chosen words. Yes, okay. <laughs> one anyone anyone who's been in the pool when you're on deck yeah, <laughs> might right. might wonder about what you the just wooden said. Spoon. <laughs> I, uh, you can be a dictator. The problem is it's a very brittle and and fragile way to lead because as soon as something goes wrong, there's no there's no, there's no strength of team bond around you to navigate the transition or to make changes everything's resting too much on only one style of leadership so the most the best way to lead is definitely through a more transformational or empowering form of leadership now uh, in terms of great teams this is honestly this is really tough for me part of the work we do is to help uh, teams at the top perform better as teams it's kind of shocking how bad they are and i i love so many of these leaders as individuals but you get a leadership team together or you get any team at the top it could be a functional team like a marketing leadership team or a, uh, a people leadership team and it's like you've got um uh like a, a tri- you know the the council of tribal elders have all come mm-hmm, together mm-hmm. all to represent their individual tribes and they're coming with the agenda to protect or defend or promote their individual tribe they have no interest in actually being vulnerable or interdependent with everyone else in the room or honest because the political stakes always seem so high and then ceos and I'll specifically talk about CEOs right now for for the teams at the top themselves. I have not found to be particularly skilled at forging teamwork because they misunderstand um, the role of a leadership team. Most of us, in most cases, you leaders I work with inherit a team at the top where everyone reports to them, and you assume, oh, this group of people reports to me. That's my leadership team. But a team has to have a really clear shared mission. Leadership teams often don't because they just assume that the company mission is their mission, which is not. Company mission is the company's mission. Mm-hmm. Leadership team mission is the leadership team's mission. It's often unwritten or an unknown. Uh, the other thing is that there isn't any interdependence because the leadership team doesn't work together on any work. They come in and they report or they represent. They don't work together. Working together means doing strategy together. It means um, launching a project together where they have to depend on each other, which would actually forge genuine teamwork. So it's a long way of, I'm sorry, it's a long-winded way of answering your question, Matt, which is I don't find a lot of great teams at the top. We actually have to help them become better and stronger. There are a few exceptions I've seen. Uh, Interestingly enough, I think the way back when we worked with uh, Blackstone team, and you've got people like Steve Schwartzman and Tony James and Joan Solitar, who as a team were phenomenally good at, at t- being honest together as a group, being super rational in discourse, being able to debate things without taking anything personally. And they had a series of operating norms or rituals, which I'd encourage anyone to do with their leadership team. Mm -hmm. You basically explicitly say, these are the things we're signing up for as a team. This is how we're going to work together. If we, if we say we're going to be honest together, it's, that's our code. We will be honest together and we will call each other out if we're not honest. And by hook or by crook, that's what we'll do. So I definitely say that the Blackstone team, and I, um, I, I think the, I mean, I, I don't have, 
I have tangential experience of the Apple team, but from working with several leaders, but not the executive team. That executive team, though, when you think about certainly going back and you think about Steve Jobs, Tim Cook, um, Johnny Ives, mm-hmm. they, they found a way of working together by using each other's complementary skills to basically add up to more than the sum of the individual parts. But it's rare. Honestly, it's super rare. It reminds me of a, a story at... About a year ago, I was working with a uh, an executive team of a financial services company, and I was asked to come in and talk about performance culture and how you set up systems of, particularly around feedback and coaching, effectively management. And uh, I walked into the room, and very quickly, as I sort of started our our discussions and our exercises, I, I realised that they were you know, the 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 eleven guys, and they were mostly guys mm-hmm. uh, that. They, they were 11 individuals, 100%. And so I decided uh, th- this is sort of similar to my my humor and style of coaching maybe, but I, uh, I sort of stopped and and uh, I could tell that they were relatively resistant. You know, who's this guy coming in here and talking? So I said, you're all shit managers. And that made them all sit up and uh, fasten their ties a little tighter to their chest and... Uh, but my point was, and, and the, it was a, a joking way to break it open, was that they had all achieved their position by being great at what they do. They're great pilots, really good pilots. But suddenly they were put in positions where they had to be the air traffic controller and the emergency services and, and the sort of pilot training, you know. And that they were in these positions where they had no support, guidance, education, training on how to do it. They were just expected to. And I think that's why they became really isolated. And that that point opened up the conversation. And suddenly it came about, well, hang on, how can we do this? How can we help? Uh, which I think is, is very common. It's actually very common in coaching as well, with uh, coaches feeling like they have to do it all alone and have the answers the whole time. And and I'm always hesitant of of coaches that think they've got all the secrets and hide their methodology. It's much better to be open because you're going to learn and grow and no one's going to steal your secrets. We're just going to learn and grow as we go along. So I think it's really important. That's super important. I, I think any if you generally look at good companies out there, I couldn't guarantee that any of the leadership teams are good. But if you look at any successful transformation of a company, I will guarantee that that was pulled off by a strong team. I can't help but tell you a story of dictatorship where you said it's really brittle. It reminds me of uh, back in the days on my collegiate swim team and we had a Mm. a little bit of a dictator. Mm. And I had uh, one of my best mates is a very charismatic Danish guy who who has a very interesting life journey. But uh, I remember one day the dictator of a coach was screaming and yelling and just shouting at us. And uh, Yeppe, my friend, put up his hand and uh, he said, what, what do you want? He said, excuse me, can I just ask, what's the next step after shouting? Is it hitting? (laughs) (laughs) And his point was, which of course he was ejected from the pool. His point was, where else do you go? It's a really brittle short-term way of coaching. And, but of course he exposed, probably not the best tool in the toolbox, but, but that was, uh, I've always had a visceral reaction to dictatorship as leadership. Likewise, it's hard, you know, I think it's hard for, for people who ascend in an organization where the, the role models they have 
are like that though because if that's your only role model of leadership you start to believe it the, the, the german ceo that i worked with who was really struggling with taking on the ceo role at his um retail company because the former ceo was very dictatorial like very strong-willed it was his way it was his way of the highway it was um he he mandated everything and um the new ceo wanted to bring in a more empowering philosophy and he was a much more of an international well-rounded sort of leader but he was he was going through these terrible misgivings and self-doubt because he worried that his primarily german workforce would not accept a different leadership style and we had to work through this process of saying you know leading doesn't need to be is not the same as dictating it's it's actually very simple this is a good handy definition for people where leadership is simply influencing people to achieve a shared goal influencing people to achieve a shared goal super simple anyone can do it it doesn't require authority it doesn't require coercion there are many ways you can influence people and you think about i mean i, I think i joked with him that did did i asked him do you think gandhi was a dictator uh, and he said, well, I'm no Gandhi. And I said, that's not my point. Yeah. I'm just saying, do you understand that you don't have to lead by one model, one paradigm? There are so many different ways you can lead as long as you're bringing people together around a shared goal and you're influencing them the way that you can influence them. And it just helped him shift his... We get so trapped by these mental models. Yeah. And so part of the work is like, look at your mental model. Is it working for you? Because if it's not, go get a different one. Change it. That's what, and and Matt, that's the role of a good coach is to challenge those mental models and those limitations and get, get that out of your head. I saw a, uh, a, I was reminded, I've I've heard this several times, I was reminded the other day of uh, great coaching is not providing all the answers, it's Mm. asking the right questions. And uh, that, that, that maybe endorses your point, but I am going to lead you here towards the end. I'm leading you to a desert island, Tom. (laughs) Now, you know, this is coming because don't know if this is my nightmare or my dream exactly we finish the show with any guests that we do have with our little section desert island and built off of a bbc radio show that i'm sure that you've heard to when you were a whippersnapper uh, where you go to a desert island you get to take a certain number of things and this is our spin on it so i'm going to lead you here now, my guess is that this isn't going to be quick fire to you because you've probably thought about this because you knew you were coming on the show. But there are three things, which is first, which book would you take? The second, which piece of music would you take? And the, further, the third is one final thing that you would take with a little context, if possible. And so we'll run through these very quick. One sentence answers or maybe two if you're lucky. First one, you are getting sent into exile. Which book would you bring with you and why? I think I would bring a book that a book that I can keep looking at to deal with the <laughs> the pain of being on a desert island. So uh, wherever wherever you go, there you are is a book by John Cabot Zinn, who runs the Mindfulness uh, Institute, and it's just a series of brilliantly written meditations on hu- on being human that I often turn to. Brilliant. And then, what about which piece of music would you bring, and why? <laughs> I, this is a hot, really hard one for me. I, you know, I love, because uh, I studied languages, I love like, very, uh, I actually like rap and I like 
um, music, music that has a lot of lyrics that are interesting. So it would have to be between Bohemian Rhapsody and Queen or, or Stan by Eminem, which I think is an astonishing, I just think that's an incredible piece of music. It's poetry and an artist that uh, the fact that Eminem <laughs> extended his influence to to appeal to an aristocratic Brit. What more? <laughs> it surprises me, but but it's, I understand it. As it's well, it shows you the genius of him as an artist, whether you like him or his music I, or not. There's I, definite genius it's there. It's just genius. It's astonishing. What he and, does. and of course, Freddie Mercury. Well, what can we say? You know. So you get to bring one other thing. What else would you bring? I know I'm supposed to say my 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 family, but we, or, or someone from my family, um, but with apologies to them, I think we all know it would be a kettlebell. Of course it would, and uh, that that's a great one. That's so. Tom and I have been working with each other for for some time and gone through a triathlon journey. But this is another great thing. You've extended your. Yeah your your reach and your journey to really learn and over the last couple of years really get into strength training particularly kettlebells and 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 have become really quite good so in fact you're a certified instructor now i'm certainly certified certified that's <laughs> you are certified there you go you got the tattoo and so the boat is leaving you you're on the journey your your feet are standing on the sand desperation you get to shout one final piece of advice to the world what would it be what uh i so want to turn the tables what what would your final piece of advice be matt because i always hear everyone else's but we've never heard yours oh dear okay so you're uh firstly i want to point out that's very unfair because i haven't had time to think about it but uh, well actually and as, as it comes to me very quickly so i already know what this is in fact everyone knows what my piece of advice would be and it's the last piece of advice that I have as I hold the shoulders of my pro athletes and greater purple patch athletes, which is don't fuck it up. It's quite simple. <laughs> but don't think you're it's, getting away from it. What is, what's yours? That is so you. That is definitely you, Matt. I hear you yeah, that in my head a lot. It yeah. has context in anything in life. <laughs> Just don't. I'll make sure to. I'll make sure to bring that into my parenting uh, from now. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Uh, God, well, I bought myself a little time there. Um, I don't. This is hard. Um, You know, I think it might be just because I've had to learn this lesson again and again and again, and it's so hard. Is be is to be patient. Anything, anything worth doing, anything worth having, I think just takes a lot longer than we imagine, whether it's just managing a transition and the patience you need to have for other people, whether it's the relationship you have with your friends, your spouse, anyone, patience and with yourself, frankly. I mean, I've, I've gone through, I I know, you know, like if I've had injuries, I'm just so impatient. And the reality is that you've got to give these things time. Every overnight success is 10 years in the making. There we go. It's always the way. Tom, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been a fantastic conversation and really insightful. I really thank you for coming on the show. Matt, I'm grateful to have been invited. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you too for being such a, a just, I don't know, just being a really positive spirit out there. We need, we need more, more good leaders out there who are empowering and doing good work. So thanks to you good man thank you and thank you so much for listening we'll catch you next time take care well i guess that's a good way to say happy new year guys i love that conversation and thank you once again tom andrews really appreciate it insightful conversation a sign of things to come 
If you want to learn more about Tom and his company, TJA Leadership, simply visit tjaleadership.com or of course you can follow them on Instagram that you place for all of us trendy kids, TJA Leadership. And while we're on the subjects of leadership, vision, creating excellence, feel free guys to join me this week for a free educational webinar. It's on January 9th, so just, well, I think tomorrow, if you're listening to this on day of release, it's entitled Your Critical Steps to Thriving as a Time-Starved Athlete in 2020. Doesn't that sound very important? I'm going to give you some five or six key things to really focus on to improve your performance results while also thriving in work, health and life. And so we want to define success, provide actionable steps to facilitate that success and learn how to start the year and each week in execution mode. Visit the show notes for registration details or of course head over to purplepatchfitness.com for more information. Until next week, take care.